Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Welcome to the 99th episode of A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. Pretty wild that we are so close to 100. Um, I'm going to speak more about how it feels to have released 100 episodes of the show when we get there next time. Um, But we're getting pretty damn close and it's sort of impossible for me not to notice or be excited uh, even at the 99th episode. I actually just recorded this little video on Instagram. Um, I was reflecting on the fact that Tori Feldman and I, who was the guest on today's episode, um, we recorded this conversation back before I even left in the van for the summer. So I was still in Colorado. This must have been May at some point. (laughs) It could have been earlier. I hope it was May. Um, And I don't always release conversations that I have in the order in which I record them. I try to like create some sort of thematic uh, sequence. Um, doesn't always work like that, but it's really rarely something is this late. And uh, I've been kind of low-key <laughs> freaking out about it. There's one other one that I also recorded back then that I still haven't released, but definitely plan to. Um, but I was kind of like low-key freaking out about the fact that I hadn't released this sooner I get into my whole sort of controlled neurotic vibe sometimes of like, oh my God, it's not going to be relevant anymore, or the guest is going to be really angry, or whatever the nonsense is that I tell myself in my head. Um, But something that I've talked about on the show a lot is that when I started this project, I wanted it to not contain any of that energy. I wanted the show to be as authentic and as fun and as pleasurable as possible. And I knew that if I tried to control it more and release things, you know, just because I needed to release things every week or market it excessively in a way that didn't feel aligned, that I would hate it. (laughs) I would get bored and I would get frustrated and the podcast would cease to exist. Um, Not to mention, I Uh, made a commitment to myself that I really wanted to work on things like surrender and trust and not using control and neurosis as a way to avoid, you know, regular fears that we all have or being intimidated or uh, just being okay with not knowing what something might be, okay with not knowing how many people are listening or how quickly the podcast is growing. Um, And so I wanted this project to sort of mirror that work that I was doing for myself. And really, truly, authentically and truthfully committing to that has shown me how miraculous it is. And what I mean by that is that 
when I trust that the timing will be right, when I trust that things will happen in the order and in the way in which they were meant to happen, I'm just so blown away by how much that happens. (laughs) Um, And I don't know if that will ever get old, uh, but it certainly has not gotten old. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because Although I recorded this podcast so long ago, and even though I've had some fears about how long it's been uh, since I recorded it in regard to posting it, it works so perfectly as the 99th episode of this show for multiple reasons. And we even mentioned 9-11 briefly, which is really bizarre, given that 9-11 was yesterday. Um, But also, really, it is such a brilliant segue into what I plan to release for the 100th episode And I recorded this conversation with Tori much before I had any idea what the 100th episode would be. In fact, I didn't really know what the 100th episode would be until like a week and a half ago. Um, And I'm just so glad that I waited and I'm so glad that I didn't force it. And I released those other conversations because I felt like thematically they made more sense. And I didn't really know what I was waiting for or when I was waiting for, but I just felt like I wanted to wait. And I'm so glad that I did. I'm not going to share with you what the 100th episode will be. You'll just have to have it be a surprise. Um, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to again mention the importance of trust and of relinquishing control and of surrendering to whatever is meant to happen and that that is where the magic occurs. That's where I am able to communicate with you on the same frequency that you're existing on. And I'm able to create this project in a way where it sort of naturally comes together in a way that makes sense. And in a, in a way that makes sense that I can't even foresee, right? It has a life of its own. I just kind of have to like sit back and let it happen. Um, and having said all that, I want to take the opportunity again to mention like I recognize that figuring, you know, working our way through that balance is incredibly difficult. And it's not always easy to try to figure out what the difference is between relinquishing control, trust, and laziness, or taking action where action needs to be taken, and excessive control. It took me a hell of a long time to figure out the difference between those things. I think I was much better at the action piece. piece, In other words... (laughs) I was a control freak and super neurotic. Um, And I wasn't super good at the sitting back piece, but I can also see that some people are the inverse of that. They're really, really good at sitting back and not taking action. And sometimes that sitting back morphs into just fear and inaction and some form of laziness. Whereas for me, taking a lot of action sort of just moved its way toward control. And... I think this finding this balance is sort of what people talk about when they talk about manifestation. I've had so many, you know, things that have happened in my life where it's almost sort of unclear, like, did I make that happen or did this just happen? And I think that sort of lack of clarity or confusion speaks to the balance here between relinquishing control and taking action. At the very beginning of this podcast, I used to uh, talk about this metaphor that I would think about to describe this a lot, which is that I feel like I'm a planet and I have an orbit (laughs) and I exist on that orbit and I'm being taken forward 
into the future, into tomorrow, into the next hour, into the next minute, whatever. But I'm definitely moving on that orbit. I don't need to do anything. I'm moving. And everything that I need or that I want or that I'm trying to create will be visible from the orbit. And when I see it, the action that needs to be taken is simply just me reaching out and taking it. But if I try to get off of my orbit, I will get totally lost and I will never find what I was meant to find because the fact is it was meant to appear to me on the orbit. But of course, if it appears to me on the orbit and I'm too afraid to reach out to get it, I'm just going to miss it. And so I feel like that's how we create and how we manifest. It's not just saying what we want into the universe. There is absolutely an active quality, but not too much. <laughs> um, and I think this is why like people who teach about manifestation, I kind of think it's ridiculous because while I'm talking to you about it and while you can sort of get the idea from someone, learning how to do this ourselves is so internal and so intuitive. It's not something we learn with like a set of instructions. Um, so if you're trying to figure out how to manifest something, don't pay for the course. Just practice this in your own life. Pick something, pick a project like I just, I did with this podcast. Pick the place you'd like to live in and play around with what it means to sit back and let things happen, but then also take action and reach out to someone when you see the ad on Craigslist or just go on Craigslist to begin with, right? There is always a balance here. I think this is also a very perfect metaphor for the balance of masculine feminine that we need in our lives feminine energy being something around sitting back allowing things to come to us relinquishing control and masculinity being representative of that action so i'm very happy that this episode and this podcast and the following episode manifested themselves in the very perfect way imaginable in a way that i couldn't even foresee and I'm excited for you to hear this conversation with Tori today. The other few things that I would like to mention, um, I decided to extend both the discount and the enrollment deadline for the Lunar Circle. I was going to um, increase the price on the 10th a couple days ago, and even though lots of people are enrolling, and even though I could have increased the price, I decided not to. Um, so I extended all of it. The discount is now valid through September 24th and enrollment is valid, uh, is open through October 4th. Of course, for the course, you need to purchase a book and I need to do some work before it gets started. So the sooner you sign up, the better. Um, but I just know that everyone's really stressed now financially and otherwise, and I didn't want to add to anybody's stress by making them feel like they had to rush, um, people who might want to sign up but aren't quite sure yet or juggling work or kids or scheduling or finances or whatever. I just wanted to give all of you guys more time. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing that I think about with this stuff all the time um, and that I've spoken a bit ab about on uh, social media the past few days is this idea of abundance. Um, <laughs> and I feel like there's this, you know, how do we balance this idea of charging what we're worth and valuing ourselves at what we're worth and having an abundant life and looking at our life abundantly, where does that intersect with selfishness and greed? 
And I think about this all the time because I feel like I'm the type of person and my psychology is such that if I, if I could afford it, I would give you guys this course for free because I don't think that generosity prevents or negate self-worth. I think the opposite occurs. I found that in my life, the more generous I am, the more abundance returns to me. I mean, there is almost nothing (laughs) more true for me in my life. Um, And I'm sure a lot of you could agree or have had similar experiences. Of course, though, we all need money to live uh, in this world. And so I can't necessarily give the course away for free. Um, But it's like this bizarre struggle where I feel like if I'm not charging what other people are charging for something like this, that somehow that's reflective of my lack of self-worth. And that's, it's like insidious and very, it's hard for me to work through, to be honest. Um, I feel that the the price of this course is extremely fair, uh, but it's still a struggle and I I haven't quite figured it out. I haven't figured it out yet. Um, at least not as much as I figured out this whole manifestation, action, trust, balance, at least. And, you know, I think what bothers me so much, I I posted something about this on Instagram a while ago about the, I I think it was entitled, it was like an Instagram live that I did about um, abundance versus greed. And how do we tell the difference? You know, when is enough enough? Um, At what point does making money equal selfishness and greed? You know, like, does it ever cross the line? (laughs) Is there any degree of abundance that just moves into hoarding at a certain point. Um, my thought is yes, there is. And I think where I've been able to sort of distinguish the difference between abundance and greed is that for me, abundance is naturally reciprocal. And I think where a lot of people talk about abundance, especially in regard to financial wealth, um, is that there isn't respect for limits. And you guys know, I talk about mythology and stories and narrative a lot. And when we, I think money, uh, exists within the realm of Taurus, let's say, as does nature. They're both expressions of resources and of security and of abundance. But when we treat money with a sense of why not make a million dollars, or when we look at money and we see it as limitless, I could truly, if I put myself to it enough, if I manifested it enough, if I held myself in this picture-perfect idea of abundance that I could have as much of it as I want, when we treat money as limitless, we treat nature as limitless. When we see one resource as unlimited, we see all resources as unlimited. But that isn't how nature works, of course. That is how we've gotten into this mess of the planet dying, because we looked at it and we thought, limitlessness, we can take as much as we want, we can dig as deep as we want into its soil, we can plant as much as we want, there is literally no limit to what we can have. And I think that mindset had a direct correlation to money, because money keeps getting printed, You know, no one's telling us like you as an individual person can only have this much. But of course, us as an individual person should really only have so much of a certain resource, a natural resource. And so I think if we're going to try to cultivate abundance or understand what abundance is, we have to look at it as reciprocal and cyclical. 
So I decided this year that I, one of my biggest priorities was to make as much money as I could. So I decided to launch the Lunar Circle, work on a bunch of writing projects, pay closer attention to my investments, um, grow my Patreon, all, all because I wanted to make money. Why? Because I want to take that money and put it into a community space in Colorado where I can create a hub for my friends to come live and help out on the property and live reciprocally. That money that you all are giving me, I am turning around and giving it back to you. That is the truest, (laughs) most honest thing for me ever. If it weren't for this project that I want to create, why would I be making all that money? I obviously recognize that we need money to live in this world. We need to support our families if we have them. We need a roof over our head and we need to eat. I totally understand that and it's totally valid. We all need to make money for those reasons. But I think we can all agree that there is an upper limit. We know what we need to do that and then we know the money that exists beyond that. And I think we can also all agree that money does not equal happiness Money does not equal fulfillment. I'm in Guatemala right now. This is a very poor country, and these people are far happier than any wealthy person I've ever met. In fact, most wealthy people I meet are extremely unhappy and unfulfilled. They operate within this complete scarcity slash unlimited mindset of never having enough and constantly needing more. It's the most empty, most vapid way to exist. And yet people here are living as a family of eight in a tiny shack and they feel rich. I think this is pretty well known. I think it'd be very hard to argue at this point. So we all recognize that financial wealth does not equal happiness. So why do we need to make more money than we need to live? The only responsible, respectable answer that I have to that question is if you're turning it around and creating something for people that need it in the form of a community space, in the form of a donation. Of course, (laughs) this is subjective, I guess, potentially. uh, Elon Musk could tell you that, um, you know, space travel is needed. I would argue with this, but I recognize it's subjective, but let's just keep this (laughs) simple. Um, Abundance is cyclical and reciprocal. And I struggle so much with watching these like abundance queen people online (laughs) talk about money being limitless because it's so hard for me not to feel like that mindset is so destructive to natural resources and to like the narrative of existence itself. And so this is where I struggle. I struggle with like, I know I need to make this money so that I can turn around and give it back to my community. And if I don't make any of that money, then I can't give anything back, but I don't want to make too much money and I don't even need that much money um, because I feel happy and I feel fulfilled in my life, completely irrelevant to my finances. I have made in my life Six figures, I have made nothing. <laughs> None, those changes 
in my finances and what I had in the bank had nothing to do with my happiness. And in fact, the times in my life where I had the most money were when I was unhappy. I'm not saying it was because I was unhappy, but it had nothing to do with my happiness. And I know that we struggle with the same question when we think about making an investment in ourselves, right? Like, why should I pay for that course? What is that going to give me? Is that going to be beneficial? Am I going to be and am, am I going to be able to turn around and, and turn that into something valuable in my life monetarily or otherwise? I've definitely been in this boat before, and I'm sure many of you are in this boat, either about my course or about something else or have been in this place before. And I, I've been thinking about when I was trying to make the decision about whether or not to invest in something for myself and whether or not it was going to be reflective or uh, meaningful in how much I considered myself to be valuable or worthy. Right. Um, and the first time I remember doing this, I enrolled in IIN, the Institute, Institute for Integrative Nutrition. I paid $5,000 it was in my early twenties to become a holistic health coach, even though I had absolutely no intention of being a holistic health coach. I had just moved to California. I left my partner to not left him, but left him temporarily, uh, geographically <laughs> in order to, uh, take this job in California. And he was going to come a lot later. I was pretty lonely. I was pretty bored. Um, and I was just really interested in health and wellness personally. And so I decided to take this course because it was something that I can do and something that would make me feel good and like something that I could focus on and uh, be interested in. And I, I never became a holistic health coach, but I turned that certification into the credential that I felt was needed to start a health and wellness blog many years ago. Uh, and I also took that health and wellness blog as a way to practice food photography so that I could become a professional food photographer later on. And so I turned this $5,000 investment into what, within two years, allowed me to make $180,000 by myself, which was crazy. And I was working too much, but still, I did it. The next time I did this in any sort of a grand way was um, paying $3,000 for my astrology apprenticeship. Again, I had no intention of becoming an astrologer. Uh, I did not want to become an astrologer, but I was going through a really crazy, awful dark night of the soul. And astrology was really interesting and had been providing me with meaning and purpose in my life in a time when I needed it the most. And so I invested in that course. And before I was even done with the course, through giving out $50 readings, I'm sure many of you listening got one of those $50 readings from me. Um, I did hundreds of them and I made the money back that the course was before I even ended the course. And then of course I've used that astrology certification to create courses of my own. Um, and that investment has, you know, made me so much more money, uh, than I ever initially invested at first. Then, uh, in January, I think of this year, I paid a thousand dollars to take a ceremonial tea course. Why? <laughs> I honestly have no idea. I just felt called to it. I kept seeing people with their tea bowls and I was just really interested in what they were doing. I have a very hard time meditating and this, at least from afar, looked like some sort of an active meditation. And I'm also dehydrated all the time. I swear to you, this was my reasoning. I'm dehydrated. And that's so doing tea ceremonies would make me more hydrated. 
um, and it might help me meditate a little bit. And I'm a very spiritual person. And this seemed like a very, you know, again, spiritual meditative experience. So I took the course having no idea other than my hydration, what it would give me in value. <laughs> um, and before that course was even over, I got so inspired by uh, Mariana, who's been on the show, by her course that I decided, hey, I can teach an online course. And that's how I launched the Lunar Circle. And then I had that, uh, I, I did that twice in the spring. And so I basically took that $1,000 investment, which definitely felt way too high for the content that was being offered. But I just had faith that for whatever reason, monetarily or not, that this course would have value to me. And I made that money back 12 times over in the course of the next three months. And that's just the money part of it, right? Like I was posting about this and someone who follows me said that people are like trying to sell this. It's like an abundance pyramid scheme, which I thought was so um, amazingly perfect. Um, that like, not only do we want to cultivate this financial abundance for ourselves, but that in order to sell something to other people, we also have to sell them this financial abundance because that's what people want. And so by giving all these examples, I don't want to claim that that's what I'm doing. Um, because obviously when it comes to community, my health, my self-awareness, um, my growth, I, I mean, these courses were invaluable. I, I don't even know how to quantify their value, uh, but certainly far more valuable than any of the monetary value that I got for them in the long run. But I have so many friends and people that I know who have so many more certifications and qualifications that I do, and yet are still so afraid to put themselves out in the world. And sometimes I question myself, like, is this my privilege <laughs> that I was able to do all of these things. And of course, to some degree, of course I have privilege and I have the financial capacity to even invest in a course in the first place or have the internet to provide my own course to other people. But I see people who are like on my level with that stuff, who are so much more qualified and certified and have taken so many more courses than me. And they still are afraid to put themselves out there. And so I feel like this idea of what will I get out of this has so much less to do with the financial investment or the privilege that is afforded to us and so much more to do with faith, determination, and valuing ourselves and having the courage and confidence to put ourselves out there. And having the courage and confidence to know that even if we can't predict what we might get out of something, if we fully commit ourselves to it and and stay present within it, there's no way we won't get something out of it. And I feel like that's how I always approached these courses that I took. I didn't have any idea what I was going to get out of them. I didn't know where that knowledge would take me. I didn't know if it would help me make money, if it would help me get to know myself better, absolutely nothing. I just sort of had this feeling that I wanted to move toward it, even if it seemed too expensive all of those things, whatever the fears or the hesitations or the insecurities were, I just thought, fuck it, something will happen. And looking back, so many more things happened than I could ever predict. So all of that to say, um, I just want to speak to the difficulty here, both in me selling myself to you guys and also in 
being in your position because I've been in your position a a lot. Um, And money is confusing. I think money is, or at least can be relatively toxic. And we have such complicated, unhealthy relationships to it. And I guess the way that I try to approach all of these things is that it's really not about the money. Like when I, when I pick the price for my course, I do it pretty intuitively. I'm not sitting down and calculating things. I'm not basing it on what other people charge, because if I did, it would be so much more money. Um, I just decide intuitively, you know, especially the lunar circle, which I've now done a couple times. I recognize how much work it is and how much, you know, where is the line between where I will feel good about this and resent this. And I definitely don't want to resent it because that's not beneficial to the people that enroll. Um, but same with when I decide to enroll in something myself. I just try to like not pay attention to that price or that cost, which again, I recognize as some degree of privilege, but things that I've invested in, I can't necessarily say I like could afford it. And that's subjective too. Like who's to say we can afford something or not. Um, I think a lot of the time our hesitation in whether or not to invest something is not, does not have to do with whether or not we can afford it. It's us trying to decide if that price is, can be correlated to the thing's value. But oftentimes we have no idea what the value is until it's done. So more it's just about the faith and the courage and the confidence to move forward, to take that action that I was speaking about before. If you have the gut feeling and you have the instinct, just put it out there and see what happens. I mean, that's what I did with the Lunar Circle. I had no idea anybody was going to sign up for this. <laughs> like, how could I know? I didn't even promote it. I had three weeks to prepare uh, based on when I wanted to launch it. It's all the faith and the courage and the confidence and the bravery. And the only way to cultivate that in our lives is to practice. At least that's how I did it. So all of that said, we create abundance in many, many ways, none of which are financial. And if you are struggling or hesitant for whether you want to sign up for this course, the good news is that the discount is extended through the 25th and the deadline to enroll is the 27th. So you have lots of time to decide. If you are struggling with something specific, though, like you can't pay everything up front, send me an email. AnyaKotz at gmail.com or message me on Instagram or whatever you, wherever you'd like to communicate with me. Um, if you're concerned about the conversion rate from American dollars to wherever you're located, there are a lot of you as well. If you're trying to figure out your schedule and how you can attend the group discussions um, while still doing what you need to do in life, send me an email. I've gotten a lot of emails like this, and I promise you that I have come to a solution with every single person that has reached out. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you what those solutions are because they've all been individual, but I promise you that if you send me an email, we can figure it out. So let me know what your hesitation is. Let me know what the issue is. I offer payment plans and lots of other things. (laughs) I hope to see you all in the group. I am so excited um, for those who have enrolled so far. Uh, we have a lot of guys this time, which I'm really excited about. There was only like one or two in the last circles and we already have several of them in this group, not to discount the women. Obviously I'm grateful for them as well, Um, but I am always excited when guys sign up for what might seem like a more feminine space. It is not, we can all do astrology together. Um, and in fact, I talk so much about the balance of masculine and feminine in the course. So always happy to have those grounded male energies in the group. 
And yeah, to sign up uh, or to get more information, you can go to Anya Kotz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S dot com slash Lunar Circle. But also shoot me an email if you'd like, and I can answer any questions and help you figure it out if you want to take the course. Um, I think that's all I'm going to say for right now. If you would like to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a review and some stars on iTunes. This helps the podcast show up more in search results and makes it look more worthwhile for guests that I reach out that I uh, want to have on the show. So again, (laughs) here's a perfect example of cyclical reciprocal abundance you review my show on itunes and in turn it means that you get to listen to better guests on the show who go to itunes to see if my podcast is like valid and worth being on and then you benefit from the thing that you helped me with to begin with yay it's perfect um the other thing you can do if you want to join the community get to know my uh, like-minded people We have a Discord server and um, workshops and playlists and a book club. We're reading Spell of the Sensuous this month uh, by David Abram. You can become a part of the community on Patreon. Help make, uh, help, man, I can't talk. Been talking for 33 minutes. I'm losing it. Um, Help keep the podcast ad free because I never want to have ads. But the only way that I can keep it going is sustained on your donations. Plus, if you become a patron at any level, you get a $50 discount on the Lunar Circle. So heads up, if you spend five bucks on Patreon, you get a $50 discount. That's a secret, except not that much a secret anymore, I guess. Um, You can get a discount on the Lunar Circle and lots and lots of other perks. You can find all of that information at patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. I'm going to play you in today. Um, with a song called Estrella by Maria Jose Montijo. I went to a sort of like cacao breathwork ceremony thing in um, San Marcos by Lake Atitlan a couple weeks ago. And Maria came and played the harp for us. Um, and it was spectacular and amazing and Uh, just so beautiful and so healing. You can find her on Spotify. I'm actually going to play two songs by her, both as the introduction to this episode and um, as the outro. Uh, If you speak Spanish, you will see why both of these songs relate to this episode. If you go on Bandcamp, Bandcamp Maria Jose Montijo, you can look at the translation of the lyrics. Um, But I felt both of these songs were extremely applicable to this show and I wanted to share her music with all of you because I've been listening to it nonstop. All right. That's all I have to say. Enjoy this song. Enjoy this conversation with Tori and I'll catch you on the other end.
expresa este momento. excited to have this conversation today. Um, I really love for the guests to introduce themselves instead of me like rattling off a bunch of words and descriptions. Um, and I know you work in ancestral healing and I feel like that this realm in particular, I think is quite appealing and, um, something that a lot of people, especially our age are really interested in, but I think it probably feels very existential to them. Like, <laughs> how would I do something like that? Right. Like I sort of understand it conceptually, but not practically. So I'd love for you to sort of introduce yourself, how you talk about yourself and maybe tell us a little bit about what is ancestral healing and how do you approach it? Yeah, thank you, Anya. I'm so, so glad to be here. So my name is Tori Feldman, and I'm an ancestral healing guide and a women's spirituality mentor. And my work is actually really geared towards women in general, ancestral healing for women. 
And I'm all about feminine embodiment, kind of that intersection between feminine embodiment and sensuality and the sacredness of being woman and our lineages and our ancestors and the feminine wisdom and the ancient wisdom that lives in our blood and in our bodies. And there's so much I could share. So ancestral healing, if I were to give it a definition, is healing intergenerational cycles and patterns. So for instance, if you notice a similarity between yourself and your mother, looking at, is there a part of my mother that I reject? Are there patterns in her life or the life of my grandmother that are repeating in my life now? And, you know, it isn't just women with the feminine line. It's all of us with all of our ancestors. And so ancestral healing is a healing modality that helps to basically, it's in response to this deep knowing that many of us have of the cycles, and the patterns in our families, the emotions that travel down our lineages, the patterns that can exist, as well as looking at the scientific side and the psychological side. Mm. So for instance, science has proven that these patterns are passed down, not only genetics like the color of your eyes, but also emotions and you know, PTSD can actually be passed down through the generations. There have been studies done about Holocaust survivors and their grandchildren who are something like 70% more likely to have PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, and same with war veterans and their grandchildren, etc. And same with, um, there were studies done by Dr. Rachel Yehuda on the women who were pregnant and in the area of the Twin Towers during 9-11 and how that stress impacted their children who were in the womb. Mm. And so looking at all of these studies, that's typically referred to scientifically as epigenetics, which is well-documented and respected in the scientific community. And then in psychology, of course, you sit down with a psychologist, a therapist, your very first session with them, and the first thing they ask you is, tell me about your, your parents, tell me about your family. And then they'll help you go into, you know, looking at your childhood patterns and what did you learn about yourself and how did those family patterns impact you to where you are now and what you're facing here. And so there's kind of this like scientific approach, this scientific proof. There's also the psychological side. And my work in the world focuses on the solution on the spiritual side. So Mm. I help women and all people, but I love working with women, especially to connect to their ancestors to do that deep healing work and also to retrieve like the hidden magic and the gems that live within our lineages, which are revealed once we do that deep healing work and clear the trauma. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. It's, it is interesting how, you know, at least in your case, but generally that sort of this, this idea of ancestral healing really does span all of these different areas. And that I think a lot of people are probably if they're in therapy, right. Or if they're doing, if they are working through family stuff that, they may be doing a version of this kind of already, you know. Um, Do you feel like there are, I I feel like I've heard this a lot from people, that there is almost like a survivor's guilt. Like, why should I, why am I so special to do this work? Like, why am I, you know, I'm not, you know, my, I see how my mother suffered or her mother suffered and it wasn't fair. And like, why should I, you know, why am I capable, um, of doing this work. It sort of feels, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you, you get that at all in your work from people or what you might say to something like that. 
Yeah. Well, I feel for those of us who are, first of all, aware of those patterns. And secondly, are in conversations like this one where you're actually hearing about ancestral healing, like there's a sacred responsibility. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's one thing to be aware of the patterns, like maybe even your parents are aware of these patterns that have been in their in their lineage. And oftentimes parents will talk about like, for example, oh, you're so angry all the time. That comes from your father's side. Like they were angry people or, mm-hmm. you know, like there's often these these patterns of women who, for example, lose their first child, whether it's through like abortion or miscarriage or um, who are always cheated on by Mm -hmm. their partner or the father of their children. And so there's like this awareness oftentimes in these families of these patterns, but then at a certain point there comes a grandchild, right? We're all grandchildren um, who understands not only with an awareness of the patterns, what's happening in their lineage, but also is basically given this chance to learn about ancestral healing as a solution. Mm -hmm. And so I would say for those people, you know, like you're saying, like the survivor's guilt, I would like to reframe that, you know, instead of like the guilt to reframe it as like a sacred responsibility. And oftentimes it can feel like a heavy burden to be like that one, you know, there's a lot of language going around. That's like, you're the one that's going to clear this trauma in your lineage. And while I believe that we have that opportunity, it's a sacred responsibility that we can do to heal. It's not like all of the pressure is falling on our shoulders. First of all, a lot of people like you were just sharing do ancestral healing work without even being aware of it. Like it's possible that your parents, you listener, your parents have already done ancestral healing work that you might not even be aware of just by choosing not to pass on a pattern. Like for instance, if your grandfather happened to be alcoholic or abusive, that your father chose, I'm not going to give that to my children. And he decided to end that pattern with him. So they might not call it ancestral healing, but that's a form of breaking these patterns in your lineage. And at the same time, you know, it's like you're, you're not holding this alone in the sense that there are literally thousands of healed, wise and well ancestors in your lineage that you can call upon to support you through this process of doing this healing work for your lineage. So you're not doing it alone. You can absolutely call upon them for support. In fact, that's the very first step towards ancestral healing work is to build those true authentic connections with your mm-hmm. wise and well ancestors and with their support and with different kinds of healing. Like I have my own method. Other people have theirs as well. And you can also walk this path intuitively. You can work together to clear that. So it isn't all just falling on you. Right. Yeah, the way I sort of would think about it or try to describe it to people, because it's certainly something I had to sort of like reckon with myself and work through was, you know, I I also think there's a it's there's a hesitation to like see what we experienced as trauma, because maybe so many people had it so much worse than us. Right. So we sort of again with the sort of weird guilt thing. um, And I sort of thought like, well, but isn't it beautiful that maybe some of us for some of us, the trauma was reduced enough and the resources were enhanced enough that like this was a gift. Like we were really given this really beautiful opportunity to, to do this work. And that, like you said, it's not necessarily a burden, but like, wow, this is so great. I can sort of walk into this and get support where I need to. And um, yeah, ground into the fact that like I did experience this, but it wasn't as bad. And that gave me this opportunity to, to move through it. And isn't that amazing? Um, 
what are, I, I would love to sort of back up a little bit and talk about you specifically in your journey, um, because I assume probably so many, especially the women listening, could relate. Um, obviously, in the West, many of us are totally separated from our ancestral lineage. We don't really know where we came from. We don't know what the traditions or the customs were, the spiritual practices were. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to hear how you grew up. Was that something that was present in your life? Did you have to sort of like work toward finding that? Um, and how can people, if they didn't have that sort of presence in their life, figure out even where to begin or, you know, what, what sort of ancestry they even had in order to heal it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for presencing, you know, that word trauma. And a lot of people like tend to compare their trauma to others. And mm-hmm. before diving into my own story more, and this will weave in, I also really just want to presence, you know, that people of color and LGBT. TQIA plus folks and, you know, people in in different countries and different political climates also have a very different kind of trauma than, for example, me being, you know, a cis white woman living in the U.S. and all the privilege that comes along with that. And, you know, there's, there's a lot to say about, you know, like comparing your trauma to others and comparing your pain to others. But First, I just really wanted to presence that here in this space, and that'll weave into my own story, too, because I'm really passionate about those issues and social Mm -hmm. justice. So I myself was raised Jewish. Um, My father on a DNA test is 100% Ashkenazi Jewish. That's a thing. (laughs) A lot of people think it's just a religion. It's actually something that shows up on a DNA test. Um, And so I was raised Jewish. My mother's side is a mix of many things, including Polish and German. And so I have both the blood of the oppressor and the oppressed in my lineage. Um, and many, many, many other bits of different countries. Um, but three out of my four grandparents came from Czechoslovakia to the U S it's the Czech Republic. Now at the time it was Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of different parts and pieces to me and the tradition I was raised in was Jewish. Those were the rituals that I grew up doing. I went to Hebrew school for five years. I learned how to read and write Hebrew. I got bought mitzvah, went through the rite of passage. And along that journey, I was being taught in Hebrew school about just how to do the bare minimum to get bought mitzvah. There was no spirituality in it. It was like, you do this because you do this. And that is tradition. (laughs) And I was actually quite obsessed with the language with Hebrew. I would stay in during recess and I would just like copy the Sidur into my notebook in cursive Hebrew as fast as I possibly could. I definitely have a lot of like scribe energy in me. I'm a writer. I, Mm -hmm. I love ancient symbols and, you know, the deep meanings behind those symbols, like Kabbalistically, which I wasn't aware of at the time. And now I know, um, but I wasn't taught what any word meant Like I literally, after five years of Hebrew school, I knew that the word dog meant fish because it was like funny, you know, dog. Um, And so I began to rebel against the idea of getting bat mitzvah because I started asking questions like, who am I even speaking to? What even is God? We say the word God. What does it mean? Like, I don't want to speak these words unless I know what I'm saying and I know what I believe in. And um, ultimately... I was kind of forced into doing that and was guilted into do this for your grandpa and went through with it. And then after that, I totally revolted and 
became a self-proclaimed atheist. I'm not anymore. I'm like the most <laughs> God-driven person. And it was, it was a journey of me being a teenager, turning my back on my roots because I didn't fully understand them. And also not knowing about the other roots of mine. You know, I didn't learn anything about like the sacred European folk traditions that were in my blood on my mother's side either. And so it took me several years to really understand that I am a spiritual being on a quest to know myself and answer those bigger questions that I was asking when I was 12 getting bat mitzvahed. Mm -hmm. And I started diving into exploring like ancient wisdom and different cosmologies and different belief systems about God, about spirituality, about the divine. And in college, I studied cultural anthropology. I became absolutely obsessed with studying about different indigenous cultures, cosmologies and ways of life. I went to an amazing school. I took a class called shamanism. I took wow. a class called indigenous people's human rights and the environment. I took a class called Taoism. I wrote my like end of the term paper on like dragons. And I just <laughs> got to dive so deep into this path. And after graduating, I went and I lived and volunteered on a Native American reservation, the Tono Atom Reservation, for a year working on cultural revitalization projects. And I was working specifically with some Native elders, the Hiachid Autumn elders, and the Hiachid Autumn language, different from the Tono Autumn language, um, at the time was going extinct. And so I was working on developing these lesson plans and was basically an assistant teacher for this um, Hiachid Autumn language class mm. held for free at the library. And our mission was to get more youth involved, to revitalize this interest in the culture, in the ancestral ways, and like preserving these traditions and preserving this language and all of the wisdom held in these languages. Mm -hmm. And what we found was no youth were showing up. And who were showing up were the elders because they wanted to speak this language that they weren't allowed to speak because of the boarding schools kind of like right. reclaiming that for themselves and just like enjoying spending time talking in your native tongue with other friends. Mm -hmm. And after a year of working on this project and several others, um, I had a huge realization that I was a white girl trying my very best to help these beautiful people get in touch with their own ancestral roots when I didn't know mine and I had turned my back on my own. And this realization was so deep because I had been so obsessed with other, you know, indigenous cultures to the point of like, I wasn't aware at the time because there wasn't much conversation, but you know, there was definitely some cultural appropriation stuff going on. And so I had to take a long, hard look at myself and decide to dive into my own roots and heal that wound. So basically, this is exactly what you were talking to earlier. There's this wound of separation for so many of us here and here, you know, the U.S. And it's not just for people in white bodies. I believe, you know, there's different types of wounds of separation. Um, for example, like black folks and being completely cut off from their ancestry due to the slave trade, mm -hmm. etc. And there's also a whole thing about paper trails. You know, it's like it's a privilege that I'm able to trace my lineage seven generations back. Right. And black and indigenous and people of color Oftentimes, those paper trails were completely deleted or not kept at all um, intentionally to cut them off from their culture, their roots. And there's so much more I could say about that. 
Um, so basically I looked and I tended to my own wound of separation of feeling like I had inherited this culture of fast food and celebrities and a culture I didn't resonate with and like cars and like this definition of success and decided to dive into my own ancestry and talk with my elders, sit with my elders, ask them the questions, start building the family trees and start diving into the sacred spiritual wisdom that lives in my lineage. And I believe that every single culture, every single tradition has so much spiritual wisdom in it. And I started to see that you know, there's, there's this like glorification for a lot of people on, you know, the ancient wisdom of of indigenous cultures. And at the same time, like that exists in my own lineage as well. I just wasn't aware of it. I wasn't raised with it. And so that's a part of the healing work that I did for myself as far as diving back into my roots. Amazing. Thank you for sharing all of that. So relatable. Um, Yeah, I'm exactly 50% Ashkenazi Jewish. (laughs) Um, Also did that whole thing of getting a a bat mitzvah, rejecting the whole thing, becoming an atheist, and then (laughs) discovering spirituality again. Yeah, Um, which I think is is common. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting to look back at these things in retrospect. And I think I'm interested to hear your thoughts too, but I think so many young people are going through like an existential spiritual crisis, Mm -hmm. but they don't know, right? It's like, I think I experienced such a degree of sort of loneliness and confusion and isolation as a child that had I'd had either the, or either a more grounded, well-rounded comprehensive connection to Judaism and what that was all about in the culture or just really anything, you know, how, how much that would have alleviated the sort of loneliness and confusion that so many of us suffer from. That's everything. Like you just put it in a nutshell in the most beautiful way, because there's like, I could literally riff on this for hours and I might cry. So when we're, you know, separated from our roots that one of the symptoms of that is that like existential spiritual feeling of like, who am I? Where do I belong? When we don't have our roots in the earth, in, you know, our knowing of who we are from our ancestry, from our ancestors, from those stories that live in our lineage, from the traditions that ground us and actually connect us to the earth and connect us to the divine. Yeah. When we're separated from those roots, that's when we're like wavering and asking these questions of like, who am I and what do I believe? And, you know, what's my way of connecting to the divine and how can I hear the voice of my intuition? And like, this isn't at all to glorify ancient times because there's oftentimes, you know, there was a lot of bloodshed that happened, but like what I like to do is I like to help people connect to their ancient, 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 ancient ancestors Mm. from the times before like historic memory, like prehistory the times when there was a deep connection to the earth and like a deep, deep sense of community, you know, that tribal way of Mm -hmm. living and connecting with each other and the earth and that place of deep belonging and that place, which this is woven through all cultures all over the world where the spiritual realm wasn't seen as separate from our everyday activities connecting with your ancestors wasn't seen as something you do, you know, through prayer or with your eyes closed. It was like literally every breath that you took, every time that you went to sleep, like all the dreams that you were having, like the spiritual world and the so-called physical, like we're literally enmeshed together as one. 
And when we connect back to those ancient times that live within us still, right? It's like this, there's a remembrance in this. It's not like you need to go out there and search and find and like you can research. It can be incredibly empowering. You know, these traditions and the folklores of your cultures, yes. And at the same time, it's all in our bodies. Like our body holds the memory in every cell and every strand of DNA of those times. And so a part of, you know, connecting to your roots and grounding and rooting back into your ancestry and those traditions and into your own authentic spirituality is to connect back to those ancient, ancient wise and well ancestors that literally live in your body. And so Mm -hmm. often when I'm working with people, I invite them to call in their ancestors and then remind them that you're not calling them in from outside of you. You're calling them forth from within you and feeling them here and knowing that they're always here and they're always accessible and you don't have to reach for them or force or try anything. It's just a matter of like strengthening that muscle of tuning back in with their wisdom that lives in your body. Yeah. I love this. We're definitely speaking the same language. Um, I would love to expand upon this a bit, this idea of I'm very into mythology, right? And like the entire basis of mythology that we know from cross-culturally is all about this reciprocal relationship between us and the quote-unquote gods, which in my mind is just the spiritual realm, right? And we are constantly communicating with and working with, and there is, there's no separation there. It's, it's, you know, we are responsible for retelling those stories and continuing the myth forward. Um, I feel like I may have, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like I may have heard you talk about or read somewhere this sort of process that you went through of doing like channeling work or something and that you sort of chose to put some of that aside for this sort of more grounded. <laughs> and I, I would love to hear what, um, what that transition was, but then also what you see as the difference between those two types of practices and why you chose to go this route for now. Okay. This is so amazing. <laughs> Woo! I love this topic. I haven't talked about this in so long. So I, for all my life until I had language for it was a channel and I had no idea. Um, I would constantly sing these songs and these made up languages that were incredibly complex. You know, me and my connection to languages and symbols, I would like create my own symbolic languages too. And like all of the margins of all of my papers were just full of these symbols and I could read them and write them fluently. And, you know, I would like make up a sign and put it with the sound of a and make up a sign, put it with the sound of B. And then I taught myself all of these other languages and I would channel these songs and receive information. And it wasn't until I started, you know, diving into my spiritual path when I was about 19, that's when 18 or 19, when I got really into spirituality, that I realized that channeling was even a thing. Mm. And I got so excited by this gift that I had that I opened it up and I just wanted to explore it. And I was like, yes, oh my gosh, yay, like this is actually a spiritual gift. And I had so much fun connecting to all these spirits and I didn't understand the energetic or spiritual consequences of opening myself up on that level. And really, I didn't realize that I had been open up on that level for at that point, you know, like 19 years. And it wasn't until I, you know, had this realization it might not be safe until I was about 23. Mm -hmm. So for about 23 years of my life, my gates were wide open. And as much as I thought that I was discerning, 
between, you know, a being of absolute highest levels of love and compassion and light and like excluding all those that don't come in that name. I thought that I was doing that. I set all my intentions to do that. And still there were some energies in my field that weren't of highest love and light and, you know, some like tricksters, if you will. Mm. And I had a really, really, really deep experience where I realized that one of the spirit guides that I was connecting to, because I was all into spirit guides at the time, um, one of the spirit guides I was connecting to wasn't actually who they said they were. And at that point, I had an altar for this guide. I was, you know, praying with them daily. And I had this experience that really woke me up and made me realize that it just wasn't for my highest good. And at that point... And this is, you know, after I went to Peru for three months, I was sitting with medicines at the time, Mm. which I no longer choose to sit with. Um, And I was working one-on-one with these shamans in the Shipibo lineage, like so deep. And they were encouraging me to channel, encouraging me to open up, encouraging me to, you know, bring these gifts more online because they were like basically training me at the time to become like an apprentice. And so I was blasted open by the medicine by my gates being wide open for 23 years. And then I had this experience of like realizing, you know, that this trickster was in my energetic field. And I made a very conscious choice, which was very, very stark contrast because at the time I was all about spirit guides, um, to actually not communicate with spirit guides, not to communicate with any spirits and just go straight to source and go straight to God, no intermediaries. So often I would connect, you know, to God, to my spirit guides and, you know, receive Mm -hmm. messages. And I was like, nope, I'm cutting out every middleman and I'm going straight back to center, straight back to source because I need to create healthy boundaries and I need to clear out any energies Mm -hmm. in my field that are not in absolute alignment with source, with that true vibration of God, of creator, of love, of spirit, whatever you want to call it. And I did that for about two and a half years and it completely changed my life. Um, I just centered and even though I'm Jewish, I centered all of my prayers around God and around Jesus Christ and around Mary Magdalene, Mother Mary, Mary Salome, Mary Jacobe, just went straight to those traditions. And actually my mother's side is, is Catholic. Um, And I just set the intention to clear it all out and to create that conscious gate that I can open and close with the utmost integrity. And after doing that, going through that experience, I very slowly started reintroducing, you know, I asked myself, what do I trust? What do I want to connect with? What do I want to let in? And for me, the things that I absolutely unequivocally trust without a shadow of a doubt are the ancestors, the healed wise and well ancestors and the elements I also did some work with angels, but mostly the ancestors and the elements. And I said, like, I know this to be true. I know this without a shadow of a doubt to be true. I feel it in my body. And this is what I choose to open myself to and connect to. And so from then on, after I was in this beautiful, expansive, airy-fairy phase of spirituality, which I think so many of us go through, and everything is so exciting and so shiny, <laughs> and you pick up a book and you read it, and it's like a metaphysical book, and you believe everything that you're reading. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you just become obsessed with this like whole, you know, new age way of being. 
I went through actually for me what was kind of like a um, a deep programming around New Age spirituality yeah. to find my own deep, authentic, rooted spirituality, and that's so much of what my connection to my ancestors brought me was like be here on Earth. Yeah. And I realized for so much of my spiritual path that my my soul was hanging up in like these upward chakras, you know, like the heart and up. And I was like this bubbly beaming butterfly fairy wandering around and like constantly with this open heart and I trust everybody and I trust everything. And, and then I, you know, through connecting with the ancestors and connecting straight back to source was like, okay, I'm going to bring my soul deeper into my body. I'm going to breathe down into my womb space, into my root, into mm. the earth, into my legs I've had a lot of experiences of breathing my soul into my legs and into my mm. feet, really grounding, bringing the soul fully back in and integrating. Cause I feel like this is also a part of ancestral healing work. When we bring our soul into our body, which is another way of, you know, it's a result of healing trauma because when we experience trauma, our soul can fragment parts of our soul fragment off, you know, different shamanic traditions might call this soul retrieval. When you go and you heal trauma and you retrieve parts of your soul and you integrate them and embody them, bring mm -hmm. them back into their, your life with the gifts learned, with the wisdom gained. Um, when we bring our soul deeper into our body, it actually activates more of our soul's gifts here on earth. And when we bring our soul deeper into our body, it activates our ancestral wisdom, which lives in every cell of our body, hiding dormant and latent there. Mm -hmm. And so you know, comparing who I was then with this open-hearted, free, kind of like floaty, fairy, happy. It was an amazing time. I was, yeah. I was having a blast <laughs> with, you know, this, this grounded, rooted spirituality now that is beyond spirituality. It's a way of being. It's a way of living. It's completely grounded here. Um, trustworthy. I trust everything that I'm doing and everything that I'm connecting to without a shadow of a doubt. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's just a huge, huge difference. And that's my journey, you know, and I don't share this at all to shame anyone who's at any point, you know, right. I'm honoring wherever everyone is on their journey. And this is just what worked for me and helped me to ground into my power and my gifts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've had, I also did that thing <laughs> when I first discovered spirituality of like, oh, here's the book that will describe it all. And this all makes total sense to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think genuinely, some of those books did make a lot more sense than anything else I'd ever, you know, read because they were talking about these sort of spiritual realms and concepts that did resonate for me so much more than like, you know, capitalism or civilization or whatever it was that we were told to adapt. And um, yes. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting to hear while you were talking to this idea of returning to source that sort of getting rid of the noise in a way is like such a great, is such great symbolism for that. This like, how much is this of this process is getting to know ourselves and developing our own individual sense of discernment. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear how much of ancestral healing runs parallel to right? Delving into our own shadow and getting to know ourselves and really recognizing the patterns that we are playing out here in the earthly realm. Yeah. Well, that's such a good question. Yeah. I believe that 
the depths to which we know ourselves are the depths to which we're turning within and doing that work, right? And the depths to which we know ourselves are also, in my opinion, very, very, very connected to the depths of which we know our roots and the story of our lineage. Mm. And so that's a part of what I help people do. It's, um, through my mythic memory method, I help people to reclaim these lost stories of their lineage. You know, if you don't know what happened, if you don't even, you know, for people who are adopted, for instance, and they don't right. know their, their blood relatives' names, I don't, you know, no matter what, even if you don't know the names of your ancestors or the stories of your lineage, you can retrieve those memories from within your body. And so that's a part of what I help people do. And so turning within and reflecting on yourself, when you add the component of the ancestral connection, it puts your life into this greater perspective that it didn't just start with you, you know, who you are and your patterns and your gifts, like you're not an isolated incident Mm -hmm. in your lineage. And there's a reason that your soul was born into your family, you know, and there's so much I could say about that. That's a whole podcast episode in itself. And there's like a sacred, there's just a sacred divinity to the lineages that our souls choose to incarnate into And like whatever we inherit from that lineage, there's something really deep that our soul came here to learn and to heal within ourselves and within our lineage as well. And so as we, you know, walk this path of getting to know ourselves, turning within, um, connecting with our ancestors kind of like puts it in that perspective of you're not just here on your own. Um, you're within this greater tapestry. You're like one thread in this tapestry in this story that's been told for generations and generations, thousands of years since ancient times. Mm. And you're weaving your golden thread into this tapestry to change the pattern of it or to, you know, bring it to deeper wholeness. And you're actually continuing a story. It's not like your story began the moment you were born. Like you're the continuation of this story that's been going on. And on an even deeper level, you know, on the level of like social justice and what's happening in our world today, our connecting with our ancestors reminds us that it's not like we're just here in the present creating our future, right? So if you look at like the histories of like white supremacy and racism that are alive in the world today, like we can't just look forward and say that didn't happen, let's move on. We need to turn back to history and like really choose to do that that work to right what has been wronged Mm -hmm. so that we can then move forward from a place that is healed and whole and complete. And my favorite African proverb, which I learned from my amazing ancestral healing priestess um, of the Ifa Orisha lineage. So she told me this proverb and it's when a child falls, he looks forward. When an elder falls, he looks back. Mm -hmm. And so that's like, imagine that you're walking and you trip. Instead of just looking forward and saying, I don't know why that happened, choose to look back. Look at what made you fall. And it's through looking back to our histories, to the stories of our lineage, to our roots, to, you know, everything that brought you here that can give you information on why you're falling or why this pattern is repeating or why there's this thing that you can't seem to heal. And Mm -hmm. so when you turn towards your roots, you actually heal it at the root. You know, all of these symptoms might be manifesting in your life. And when you turn towards the root and you go to the root, that's what I help people do is we travel back to the time that a core wound happened in your lineage. We go to the core, 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 core of it, right? We're not just working here and now with your mind, with your, 
everything. We're going back, back, back to when did this start? Let's go to the core of it. When did this wound start in your lineage? When you do that healing work and then let that ripple out through time all the way until it reaches you now and embody that healing, like truly deeply embody that healing. That is, I think, some of the deepest self-reflection and rewriting that we can do and like consciously choosing to program our future and our present. That doesn't happen unless we turn to heal. Where did this start? How can we look back? So that's, you know, on the collective level as well with all of these social justice movements happening as well. Right. Yeah. And it really gets back to that idea of, you know, that the work that we're doing right now in this lifetime is affecting, you know, not just our past or is it or not just is our past involved in it, but of course, the the past of all these ancestors as well. And it brings up that point of, you know, that responsibility is not just a responsibility that we're taking on for ourselves or for potential future generations, but also a responsibility we're taking on for the benefit of those who came before us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And future generations too. Exactly. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Isn't there like something about like seven generations in the past and seven generations in the future or something like that? Yeah. So different people say that this came from different tribes. Mm. I believe it's actually the Iroquois. Some people might say it's the Lakota um, who had this, you know, this wisdom about seven generations in the past. When you heal seven generations in the past and you heal seven generations in the future, like what you Mm. do right now is affecting it on that on that timeline. And I believe that that's true. And I believe it also goes so much deeper and so much farther back. Right. Like often in my sessions, we're traveling back hundreds of generations ago, um, to ancient times. Um, but yeah, there's, there's beautiful wisdom in that, you know, and it just like puts things into context. And for a lot of us, it's hard to imagine even beyond seven generations back or seven generations forward. So yeah, there's so much beauty in doing that work. Yeah. I'd love to talk about the womanhood piece of all of this and hear a little bit about what inspired you to focus in there. Um, Mm -hmm. and also I, I, you know, I think it's quite difficult at the moment, especially I think the whole gender thing and like the misunderstanding around masculine feminine energy versus bodies. And like, it's Mm -hmm. such a, you know, and rightfully so like heated and stressful and and overwhelming and traumatic. And, you know, we're, we're at such a, um, critical point of transition. And so I think it's, I've definitely found myself at least in such dire need of doing this work to sort of reclaim my own womanhood and female nature. But there's this like context in which, you know, I think the current context in which there's a guilt there or a fear there, but also given our ancestral lineages about how women like were not able to sort of (laughs) reclaim their gifts or embody themselves fully. Um, I feel like that was a many part question, but really just hearing about what led you to focus there and, and what sort of hills did you have to climb in order to get there? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, first and foremost, on the most simple level, I just love women. I love us. I think we're amazing. And I'm obsessed obsessed with women. I just, women are everything to me. They make me so happy. Um, and you know, there's this, this deep reclamation that's happening for women around our gifts and around being seen. 
And so I do a lot of work specifically with women around healing what some call the witch wound. Some also call this the persecution wound. Hmm. And so whether or not your ancestors were witches, whether or not you consider yourself a witch, you know, the witch wound, I believe, actually impacts most women. And this wound is cultural. It's not just in our lineages, although it does exist in our lineages. It's also cultural. So just imagine how, for how long, for how many thousands of years, the women in your lineage have had to, in some way, dim their light or hide their magic or silence their voice or fit into a box or just do as they were told for fear of ultimately at the root for fear of being killed. And, you know, the witch trials and the witch persecutions are a very obvious example of this. You know, women even gathering together in the woods, even if there was nothing of the sort related to witchcraft, that was not allowed. And there's also this deep sisterhood wound of if a woman was um, put on trial for being a witch, she could lessen her sentence if she blamed another woman in her community of witchcraft, if she outed another woman. And so there's these deep wounds related to sisterhood, related to being seen, related to being in your magic. Just a woman speaking up and speaking her truth could have someone point their finger and call her a witch. If you did anything that deviated from the norm, you could literally have died. You could have been killed. And of course, you know, it wasn't just women who were persecuted. There were a lot of like anyone who didn't fit into this box of society. And largely that was mostly women. Um, But on another very real level for generations and generations, all of the women in our lineages who had to um, be quiet or, you know, silence their true voices, who had to hide their magic, which doesn't need to mean magic in the sense that we might know it, but, you know, just their light, their, their authenticity, their full selves, like they couldn't express their full selves for fear of being killed or dying in a different way. Mm. And so this also goes back to ancient tribal dynamics. So even in recent generations and all the way back to tribal times, if you don't fit in with your community, then you are outcast, you are shunned, you are judged, you are shamed. And that in itself, on an ancient level, on that ancient tribal level, meant death. If you didn't fit in with your community, then that meant death for you. You weren't supported by the community. You were out on your own, basically, in the wild, trying to live and fend for yourself. And also for women in like, think back to the time of like the cavemen, the cave women, the woman had to do whatever necessary to keep the attention of her mate, or he would not provide protection for her and her children while she was vulnerable, pregnant, you know, carrying, you know, pounds of children, if they were to be like running from a beast, for instance, and wouldn't be fed what she and her children needed to be fed because being a mother, even in a village, is a full-time job. Um, And so even in recent generations, like the generations of our grandparents and great-grandparents, this witch wound is so alive in so many of our grandparents, right? And for some of them, it took the form of like religion, telling them to be quiet and fit Mm -hmm. into a box, but it's, it's deeper than that. And on that deep level in our nervous systems, this is like a part of what ancestral healing does is it reprograms every cell of our body. It releases the emotional trauma. It like reprograms this nervous system. Um, Thinking of our grandparents and our great grandparents in the nervous systems of all the women, 
all of the trauma of what has happened to women collectively in the world and in our lineages is like trapped in the body. Mm. And that keeps you from deviating from the norm because you want to play safe in order to be accepted, to be liked, to, you know, fit in and even to get ahead in life. And, you know, for our grandparents and great grandparents, it was a different time when like women couldn't even um, have their own credit card, you know, like they, they needed to depend on their spouse. They couldn't get jobs, most of them, or if they did, they were so like low in comparison to the wage that men would earn. And so on that level of survival, they needed to fit in. And so there's all of this too. And it's also very related to like sexual expression and how, you know, our sexual sensual expression is demonized and how much fear is living in the collective. Like we're constantly told by movies and by the media and by news that if you express your sexuality in any way, someone could attack you. And so there's this deep repression that's happening, whether consciously or subconsciously or a combination of the two that tells us hide, that tells us play safe, that tells us be quiet, don't be seen. And so that's so much of the work that I'm doing with women is going deep into that and healing that and clearing that in our lineages, like literally connecting with the wise women, with the healers, with the mystics in our lineage, with the midwives, with like the herbalist, perhaps even with the witches who were killed because of them expressing their gifts or who lived lives that felt like they were in prison because they couldn't express their true authentic selves. And so that's a part of what we're doing is we're freeing those women in our lineages but not just in the work, but today, like through us choosing to speak up, through us choosing to speak our truth and to be our truth in the world, to express our sensuality, our sexuality, and to just show up in our full womanhood without being shamed, without shaming ourselves. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, we're rewriting this story in the collective. Like there are so many women today who still can't do that work in real time, who can't use their voices, who can't express their sexuality because of their circumstances, whether they're in an abusive relationship and it literally could mean death or whether they're in a culture that doesn't allow them to do that or they could be stoned or shunned or outcast, etc. And of course, this isn't just about women, but you know, like so many, this is also related to LGBTQIA folks. This is related to people of color, especially women of color, especially like the trans community. There's when we do this work for ourselves, not only frees ourselves and our lineages and future generations, it sets a new precedent for what it means to be a fully expressed woman or human today. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And the, you know, this idea of the fact, you know, I I think I'm, was often hit with the sense of we've so lost track of even what like powerful femininity or a powerful woman is relative to a powerful man. And I think that's also been such a frustrating part of all of this, that in the reclamation right in this reclamation that we want for ourselves. It's like so many of the examples of what quote unquote value value is or power is in our society are these sort of more like, you know, dominant, aggressive ownership. Right. And like to Mm -hmm. that, it really is. I feel like who else is, you know, if, if, if not us, who, and if not now, when, we have to kind of not just reclaim those things, but I think also hopefully responsibly work toward, you know, 
recreating them and establishing them ourselves for this day and age. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I'm interested if you, if you, um, come across that as well, this sort of like, there are things that, you know, you could say make women powerful that don't necessarily need to mimic or mirror something that we might think of as far as masculine power goes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Obsessed with this topic. <laughs> Good, me too. <laughs> yeah, this literally what we're talking about right now is what my course, The Honeyed Womb, is all about. And mm. really it's about like reclaiming our feminine power and connecting back into our intuition and our feminine superpowers and understanding and understanding through deep self-reflection, through deep inner work, through embodiment practices, through meditations, through like teaching and rewiring the nervous system and the brain mm. and our belief systems. Like what does being a woman mean for you? And not only a woman in, for example, the archetype of the wounded maiden, you know, she who is just existing to make other people happy, to be the good girl, to put on the mask, to say, you know, I'll do whatever I can to keep everyone around me pleased, you know, the people pleaser, but to find, you know, what it means to be a woman in her power. Like, for example, in the archetype of mother, like she knows her power. She's in her sovereignty, the queen. And, you know, playing with these feminine archetypes as well as just doing that deep introspection work of like, I was told that as a woman, I should want this and I should be this. And this is what power looks like. But what do I really want? Like, what, what does my soul really want? What is the voice of my intuition telling me? When I push away all of the opinions of others, which I usually allow to control me, when I push all of those away and reclaim my space and set my boundaries and reflect and look within and connect to that inner pillar between my heart and my womb space and I connect in with the divine and I connect in with the earth, I connect in with the energy of like the healed mother and the queen and the sovereignty that lives within me. When I feel my inner power, what do I want to create in my life? What do I want to consciously weave into this tapestry for myself and for my lineage? Like, what's this new story that I'm telling myself? What does feminine power mean to me? And for me, so much of what feminine power means is connecting into our superpowers of, you know, intuition and deep inner knowing and like the mystic states that don't even have words of how do we just know the things that we know? How are we able to remember the things that we remember? And so much of that can be woven into topics of like past lives and our ancestors. And it's like, we're part of this ancient heartbeat, like this, this lineage. It's like this red thread connects us to all of the women who came before us and all of their magic, which is woven into us now. It's like when you were in your mother's womb, you were connected to her by, you know, this umbilical cord, this like red thread. When she was in her grandmother's womb, you were connected, she was connected to her by a red thread. And when your mother was in your grandmother's womb, you were actually in there on a cellular level. You were in your grandmother's womb because when your mother was a fetus in your grandmother's womb, at four months old, your mother carried all of the eggs that she would ever have. And you came from one of those eggs. Yeah. And so there's this like thread that's woven through our lineages that connects us like womb space to womb space to womb space. And it's not just about having a physical womb, right? Like I work with trans women. I work with women who have had hysterectomies. It's not just about having a physical womb, but it's connecting to that like wombic thread that has woven through our lineages that brings us that power, like from ancient times. Like this mm -hmm. is like 
inseparable. Like this lives in every cell of our body. It flows through our veins as like the sacred waters and the blood. And there's like this ancient heartbeat of this knowing of who you are. And it's like when you connect to your ancestors, when you connect to your intuition, when you connect to your feminine superpowers, when you like reevaluate what feminine power truly means for you, you're reclaiming the power of all of those women who came before you and you choose to be the embodiment of what they could not. Mm. And so that's so much of the work that we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, I find myself definitely over the past five or so years as I've sort of like moved closer to myself and (laughs) gone through a dark night of the soul. It's like when I do ask myself that question about what is it that I want to be doing or what is it that I want to be embodying? It's, it's fascinating to recognize how much of that the answer is like slowness, intuitive, moving through the world intuitively, rest, vulnerability. And it's Mm -hmm. fascinating to experience that firsthand and know how like just true that feels and then look out on the culture and society and recognize how at odds (laughs) with what we've been told to do that is. And and I think that's such a beautiful thing too, to recognize, like we think of bravery or courage as like, you know, the, the um, fighter running out into the battlefield. And it's like, what if we could also see the version of courage and bravery in openness, right? Mm-hmm. Like in trust. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I want to speak more to that because it's just like, oh, (laughs) part of what we're healing in the collective, which is the reclamation of the feminine, which is, you know, not just about women, but about the feminine, you know, being remembered on our planet as sacred, as important, um, is understanding, and this is part of what I teach in The Honeyed Womb as well, that there's this deep fear of the feminine. There's actually, it's not just, you know, uh, an over-exaltion of the masculine traits you know, productivity and strength looking a certain way, et cetera. It's also mm-hmm. a rejection of the feminine. Um, and so the rejection of the feminine, the rejection of like the rest, the intuitive wisdom in favor for like productivity and like science, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah. love science, but, yeah. like it's not all not science. All all it. <laughs> yeah. um, exactly. It's actually deeply connected to our like repression of the ancestors and of like the other side, the like the other side of the veil, the spiritual side. And so I like to say that the circle of life doesn't go from life to death. Life to death is actually one half of the circle. It's life to death. And then the other side is death, the land of the ancestors and rebirth. Hmm. And so that's the side of the feminine. That's the mystery. That's the rest. That's like everything that the feminine represents, the spiritual side, the spiritual connection, the ancestors, like I could get so dorky about this. I'm so obsessed. So since I was a teacher, I was so, I was so like blown away by how, when someone passes away, typically what we do with their bodies is we like inject them with embalming fluid. We stuff their chest with something so that their chest doesn't look like it's collapsed in. We cover them in makeup and we try to make them look like they're alive again even if it's not an open casket and we put them in a box, usually a very expensive box that is not biodegradable that goes into the earth, separating us from nature. So first of all, we're rejecting, you know, the physical appearance of death. We're rejecting, you know, the idea that we're going back into the earth, like truly to, 
like be a part of this system, this like regenerative, you know, composting natural cycle of life and death. And we're also polluting the earth with that body, which not only gets chemically, (laughs) you know, infused throughout our lifetime, but now you're injecting this, you're injecting that, you're putting in in this box with this toxic varnish. And it's just, it's so deep, like the rejection, the refusal when in so many cultures all over the world, death is celebrated as, you know, a window and you're still able to connect to that person. And it's a normal part of life to feel connected to that person after. It's not like, oh, this might sound crazy, but I think I felt my grandma the other day, you know? No, like it's literally a way of life and a way of being where you're not, you didn't truly lose them. You lost them in one form. And there's a deep grief that comes with that. And it's so important to honor the grief. And I think a part of honoring the grief is not like dressing them up to make them look like they're alive anymore. And this, you know, I'm not saying this in any way to shame anyone who wants this or, you know, who has done this. It's, it's a sacred unfolding, whatever has come to be. And it's just like putting our attention on how, like in many cultures all over the world, like there are even cultures where like they spend time with the bodies of their past ones, like they mummify them in some ways. And then they have these days of like ancestral celebration Mm -hmm. when they like bring grandma back home. And like from a young age, like the children are raised knowing their grandma, even if their grandma wasn't even alive when they were born. So you can literally have this connection with your ancestors, have this understanding of the sacredness of death of the spiritual realms, of the other side, of things that we don't understand, of the feminine, of true rest, and all of the other feminine aspects. So a part of reclaiming the feminine on our planet is reclaiming like that mystery, reclaiming our connection to our ancestors, reclaiming the other side, and bringing that into like rightful, whole balance with the masculine, not this wounded masculine of productivity or you're unworthy, but like true healed masculine, right? So there's, there's a lot that goes into that. Yeah. Yes. I love that. One of my um, favorite teachers, he's an astrologer and a psychotherapist, and he talks about like, you know, like this whole masculine feminine thing, we're getting really confused about it. What if we just spoke about it as far as like day and night psychology, right? So that of the day and that of the night. And Mm -hmm. what's fascinating too, is like, we're all, most of us are pretty familiar with like Greek and Roman myths, but prior to that, more of the ancient myths, you know, in the more modern stories, the post sort of patriarchal stories, it's always the men that are in the underworld, right? And like uh, Persephone visits Hades and it's always the sort of the women going to the underworld. And in the more ancient myths, the women are the rulers of the underworld and the men visit the underworld. And it's like when I heard that, it was like, of course, of course, right? That makes so much more sense when we think about the elements and these archetypes all together. It's like the feminine being that sort of guardian of the night. And that is so much of what we've neglected. Yeah. And so much of that too is reminding me of like the Oracle of Delphi and like Pythia and the priestesses during those like ancient Grecian times Mm -hmm. who are actually called Melissa, which is the plural word of Melissa, which means bee. So the word for bee and the word for priestess were the same in these ancient cultures. Um, I'm a beekeeper. The honeyed womb also incorporates like these ancient feminine mysteries of the water priestesses and the bee priestesses. And really it's reminding me that like during those ancient times, like the women were regarded as the oracles, as Mm -hmm. those who could breathe into their womb space and connect to the divine and channel these messages that men came to them to hear. 
So instead of, you know, men being the priests, like this time of women being the priestesses, being the oracles, and there's actually, there's so much more that weaves into this like Delphic oracle, um, Pythian time. But basically the oracle of Delphi would sit on this tripod with her skirt open over this pit that had these vapors that naturally rose from the earth. And she would receive these vapors and go into these oracular states of consciousness, you know, oracular meaning like as an oracle. Mm -hmm. And then it was studied at, you know, this, at this site at the Oracle of Delphi, the Temple of Delphi, that these vapors actually had these like psychedelic properties to them. And so like literally receiving those vapors through your feminine space and like activating the oracle Mm -hmm. of the womb space and speaking these messages that men would travel from like miles and miles away to receive. And then all of the priestesses, actually, this is like a part of, you know, there's so much mythology around bees and around honey and about like, you know, the, the women and the feminine in many ancient societies all over the earth. But, um, they would, they would take a spoonful of honey before any oracular delivery was made because honey represented like truth, like Mm. true feminine wisdom and true feminine knowledge. And so taking that spoonful of honey was literally like this medicine of like, after you do this, like no untruths can be spoken. Like there's a sweetness on your tongue. Mm. Like there's connection to the feminine and to the divine. And then the entire complex was also, you know, modeled after a beehive and it, there's so much more I could talk this about cool. queen bee and the, the <laughs> maiden bees and the beehive, like the same wow. thing is happening. It's, yeah. It goes so deep. I get, I get so excited about these topics. <laughs> no, it's good. I was going to ask you, I wasn't sure what the honey woo, I, I figured it had a deeper meaning and I really wanted to know what it was. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and of course this also relates, I mean, we haven't talked about sexuality a lot, but of course this also relates to that piece as well. And I think it's such a beautiful way for women also to reclaim sexuality is to recognize how sacred and how tied into spirituality this used to be. Um, and that for me was such a, I felt like I've, I have always, I know like you had the language and the words. I feel like for me, it was always sexuality. It was like cultures telling me this is really bad and dirty and that I should be ashamed. And, but for some reason, this feels like the most sacred pure, like pure was the word I would use to describe it. Part of me that I, that I felt like for me was always my sort of guiding light, you know, in my life of like moving toward being embodied and confident and feeling good in that way. Because without that, I felt like there was something deeply wrong. Um, but I'm sure you get a lot of that as well, because as women, you know, it's very difficult to be an embodied sexual woman for reasons you described and so many more. But, you know, how to it's not just about like, I don't know, that there is the spiritual and sacred component to it that I think might confuse people at first, but is probably more resonant for them than other things. This is so big. So you know how I was talking about how the feminine is feared? It's like the feminine is feared because it has the power to both create and destroy. Like there's, you know, the archetypes of like Kali, there's like the blood that comes out from most women who have wounds. Um, and then there's also the power to create, like the power of creation is our sexual energy. That is our sexuality. And whether or not you use your sexuality to create a baby, you still have sexual energy that you can use to create and birth whatever you want into your life. And Mm so like you shared, like the sacredness of sexuality, it literally goes straight to God. It goes straight to creator. 
because you are a creator as well. And like God, goddess, the divine lives within you and is creating through you all the time. Mm. And our sexual energy is literally the manifestation of that creative energy, like straight from source, straight through us. Mm. And it ties in so deep too. Like if you think about how sacred your sexuality is, like you wouldn't be here without sex. Like your ancestors had sex. That's what None brought you would. into <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? And like, your sexuality is this life force energy. And if we reject or shame this life force energy, which is like what we have done in culture, if we like create it and make it taboo, then we're not fully owning our ability to consciously create our lives and Mm -hmm. connect to the divine and like be that vessel and that channel for the deeper work that's wanting to flow through us. Just the same way that like our ancestors have so much life force energy. If we reject our ancestors, then we're not reclaiming the power that lives in our lineage, like the primal ancient power and gifts that want to flow through us. And in my course, so much of what we're doing in the honeyed womb is like imagining that there is this like dollop of honey that's in the womb space And the womb space exists whether or not you have a physical womb. If you're a woman, the womb space is your energetic feminine power center. And it lives just two inches beneath the navel. And so imagining that there's this dollop of honey in your womb space. And just like what you were speaking to, the purity of our sexuality, that's what this honey is. So honey is the only food that doesn't spoil like really letting that sink in, like this pure feminine essence, this distillation of like the nectar of the flowers, you know, filled into this like sacred water, nectar, honey gem. It's the only food that doesn't spoil. And just the same way, and this is part of like what Kabbalah teaches, like the ancient wisdom of like our Jewish ancestors is that our soul is untouchable. And so I like to teach that the womb space is the seat of the feminine soul. Mm. And just, you know, there, there's so much trauma and there's programming and there's all of this stuff that's built into our womb spaces that's built around us. But at the center of all of that, there is your soul, which is untouchable, right? No matter what has happened, your soul has remained pure and has remained intact beneath all of that. So part of what we're doing as we do this ancestral healing work, as we do this like work in our lives, as we're clearing away all of those layers around the light of our soul, Mm -hmm. around the honey, like, you know, the soul is untouchable and the honey never spoils. Like your soul, your soul can never be spoiled and tarnished. And it's the same with your sexuality, right? There might be all these layers of trauma and fear and like shame, but when you clear all Mm -hmm. of that away and you activate you know, that, that honey, that sweetness, that power of your sexuality, you're reclaiming that purity and you're stepping into the power of yourself as a creator and the power of your soul to guide your life. So it's like the womb space is also the seat of the intuition and of our feminine wisdom. Like it just weaves so deeply. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable and also astonishingly, you know, rebellious and powerful I mean I feel like the the autonomous sexual woman is like not just that intangible form right but what that represents symbolically as well I feel like is the thing our society fears and tries to repress the most so much power yeah 
Right. Like what exactly. happened to women just reclaimed our power. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. And, and for, you know, and I think we have a lot of, you know, it's, it's fascinating to pay attention to what sort of crops up in pop culture. And I feel like there's so much that so many things that, you know, come about as acting as if they are trying to get rid of sexual repression, but actually sort of doing the same thing again, you know, like it takes a lot of discernment, I feel like to really unpack the layers of, you know, what is empowerment, what is, what is embodiment. Um, and it's, I don't know, for me, it was something that had to be done really by myself. Like I had to be so quiet and so still in order to, at least at first, drown out the noise and find these answers for myself. I mean, because, you know, they've been buried and buried and buried and buried. And and I agree. I think all of this truth resides within us. Um, but it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't obviously take quite a bit of work to, to retrieve that stuff and to do, you know, um, yeah, the work through codependency, the work through societal expectations, the work through... I mean, I also wanted to talk to you about motherhood a little bit in this context. Um, and yeah, I I think I've in my life pretty much decided I don't want to have kids. But what was so revolutionary to me was to recognize that I could still be a mother. Um mm. And that this is, um, you know, the mother is an archetype, um, you know, at the end of the day. And uh, how do you, you know, especially younger people, I feel like a lot of us are sort of thinking about, is this what I want to do with my life? Do I want to bring another human into this very overpopulated world? And But at the same time, it's like we want to heal and we want to pass on that healing. So there's this like conflict sometimes of like, do we need to have a child in order to do that? Um, so I'm, I'm interested to hear how you sort of deal, I'm sure in so many ways, but deal with the mother archetype in that way. And, um, how might we be able to bring that energy into the world maybe without the physical having children part? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yes. So I'm hearing, you know, the question about the mother archetype. And I also really want to speak to, you know, those of us who choose not to have children mm. and, you know, you were kind of asking, like, who can we pass our healing on to, you know, if we're doing all this healing work. And when I talk about, you know, doing this healing work for the ancestors and for future generations, even if no future generations come through you physically, you're doing this work for the collective future generations to come. Mm-hmm. You know, you're like rewriting and like creating this new empowered narrative and doing your healing work to clear up what's been happening in your lineage. Mm. There's this incredible woman. Her name is Jessica Winston. She's House of Hoodoo on Instagram. And she made this really powerful post about how what um, we don't clean up in our lineages is actually still happening in the spiritual. She basically said something like this, and I'm paraphrasing. And follow her if you aren't already. She's just, like, got so much wisdom. She's, like, a true New Orleans, like, priestess. Mm. Um, She talks about – she says something like this, that – what when uh, an elder dies or when a person dies and they're in the land of the ancestors, it's not like all of the energy that they were holding, like for example, racism and like patterns of abuse and harm. It's not like all that energy disappears. Like it's actually just transferred over to the spiritual. And so 
what we're doing through ancestral healing work is we're actually clearing up the spiritual side where all of that energy is still existing, which is actually still upholding these systems of oppression that are here. And, you know, it's also about the environment. It's also about, you know, these ways of being in the world that we want to create. And so those of us who choose not to have children, like that work is just as important. Like that work that you're doing is a part of what's creating a better future for the earth herself and for future generations. And, to answer the second part of that question about, you know, the archetype of mother, there's so much I can say. I have, I have a whole module on this in the honeyed womb. Um, so the mother archetype is, you know, just like this woman in her power, the woman who's no longer living for others, which is interesting, right? Because in our society, we tell ourselves like when you're a mother, that means you're living for your kids. And it's like, well, it's also an archetype to work with where even if your children come first, that you are not a slave to the role of mother and that first and foremost, you are connected to your power and your sovereignty. And that's a part of what you're sharing with your children, with your family, with the world. Mm. And you don't need to be a physical mother to be in the archetype of mother. And if you're, you are a physical mother, it doesn't mean that you're in the archetype of mother. You could still be in the archetype of wounded maiden, even if you have kids, right? And so understanding the mother archetype also comes along with understanding the wounded maiden. And there's like beauty to the maiden and there's shadows to the maiden. Just the same, there's beauty to the mother and there's shadows to the mother as well. So like one of the big pieces is that the maiden or the the wounded maiden moves from instinct and reactivity and trying to please others, putting herself last, listening to the opinions of others, letting that guide her life. Whereas the mother moves from wisdom and intuition and deeper connection to herself, deeper connection to the divine. And she is her own inner authority. Her connection to the divine is what guides her life, not the opinions of others. She has clear boundaries and she's able to offer her gifts from her heart not because they're demanded of her, but because she chooses where she puts her energy and she does so from a place of deep inner wisdom Mm. and knowing who she is. And that is ultimately what gives us fulfillment, right? Is like knowing who we are, being connected to the divine and not giving away our power and moving from that place of inner wisdom and the embodiment of just like who we came here to be. That's kind of the way I look at this work in a lot of ways. It's like I help steward women to step into the woman they came here to be, that they know they have within them deep down. And sometimes what that takes is facing the inner wounded maiden and not rejecting her, but truly loving her, Mm -hmm. right? That's like such a huge part of the shadow work is like, we're not rejecting the shadow. We're not further shaming the shadow. We're turning towards the shadow to embrace it wholly and completely. And when we do that, when we're no longer shaming ourselves, judging ourselves, etc., we're reclaiming all of the energy that it took to push that shadow away, mm-hmm. right? Because like when we push the shadow away or when we repress these parts of ourselves and when we put on like this good girl, people-pleasing mask, it actually takes so much energy to hold that all down, just like it takes energy to hold anger down, mm-hmm. you know? And so when we turn to feel and embrace that anger, not in a negative shadow way, but through an empowering way, 
that's when we reclaim the gifts of anger. And this is just one example. Because mm-hmm. if you're trying to repress anger, it's going to kind of like explode out, you know, like a volcano and like, you know, like a oh, snake yes. like yeah. sneaking its head out. <laughs> yeah. It's going to attack. It's going to be vicious, you know. But if we learn to move anger through our bodies with like emotional alchemy practices, with shadow work practices, and integrate the anger in a healthy way, it's not only liberating these patterns of anger in our lineages, what it's also doing is it's reclaiming our anger as a sacred gift. Mm-hmm. And anger is one of the most powerful emotions that we can use for knowing what our boundaries are and setting them and holding them and knowing our worth. Like our anger exists to stand up for ourselves, to stand up for like social justice movements that we believe in, to be a voice of like the fierce goddess who says no more. You know, like, this is who I am. No more will you trespass. This is what the earth deserves. No more will you, like, rape and pillage her. And so a huge part of, you know, stepping into that inner mother archetype is doing that shadow work, loving the wounded inner maiden, like, integrating through emotional alchemy and shadow work all of these parts and pieces that we've rejected so that we reclaim their gifts from a place of wisdom and we can wield them with beauty and intention in our lives rather than the unconscious shadow running the show. Amen. Yeah, I always talk about, I've talked about it in several ways, but like how, you know, anger is a bridge, not a parking lot or like a catalyst, Mm -hmm. not an end game sort of like, because of course we can't, like you said, set boundaries, figure out what's wrong, know where we want to move forward or not without that sort of sense of um, sacred rage. And then you know, it's, it's about using that as a way to move forward, right? Using that as a way to move toward autonomy, to move toward responsibility, to relinquish blame, even if we were hurt, right? This idea of like taking responsibility without taking on the blame of something. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think about that a lot. I sometimes, I sometimes feel that we get stuck, in the anger place, right? Because of course we have so much to be angry for. Um, and this makes sense. Yeah. I, I, when I was going through, um, a pretty gnarly dark night of the soul a few years ago, I remember thinking about this a lot because I was so angry, really angry for the first time, at least consciously Mm -hmm. and intentionally. Um, and I remember being a little freaked out about it and, and feeling like, I don't know, am I always going to kind of exist in this place? And I remember my father said something to me. He was like, Anya, I think it's I think it's OK. I think you should trust the process. And I think the reason you feel so identified with this anger right now is because it's probably the most authentic emotion you've had in quite some time. And I was like, <laughs> OK, <laughs> yeah, my dad's pretty wise. Um, but yeah, that was, that was really potent to recognize. And, and I think sort of like opening ourselves up to allow the anger to take us where we need to go. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, not shaming it, but also not taking it on as like, if I don't stay here forever, then I might be hurt again. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, like there's a lot of, you know, you know, you have to sometimes cut contact with people or really break up relationships or like there's no way to move forward in a healthy conscious way without doing that. And sometimes that can feel like, I don't know where this is going to go, but I just sort of trust, I trust the catapult, you know, of the rage. Oh my gosh. So much wisdom in what you just shared. Yeah. This is, this is, you know, like a practice, like everything is a practice. Um, 
for whoever's watching, if you're wanting to like learn how to start to move with these different emotions within you, first of all, there are many different kinds of embodiment practices. This one is more of a journaling exercise. Um, you can actually feel like you're at a table with all of these different parts of yourself, right? There's like the one who's angry. There's the one who's scared. There's the one who is yada, yada, yada. There's all of these different parts and pieces. The one who feels lost, the one who, I don't know, there's so many. We mm -hmm. all have our different, you know, counsel and sitting yeah. at the table with them. And with your journal and pen, allow for the anger, the angry one to speak and to write out everything that they want to say. Mm -hmm. And if another part wants to butt in, like the one who's lost, just be like, you're going to have your turn. Right now we're letting anger express and really letting this anger just pour out onto this page everything it wants to say without filtering it mm. and just like letting it have its voice, letting it have its place. And then you can also go through, you know, the other parts of yourself that are really active during this time in your life who have so much to say. Mm. Let them each have their turn journaling out what they want to say. And remember that you are like in the director's seat at this table, that like your consciousness is like the conductor. You are the director. Mm. And so you can speak even out loud to these parts and pieces, like in your most beautiful, authoritative voice. You know, like now anger has the chance to speak. Everyone else, I ask that you please listen um, and really let these parts of you be expressed. Mm. And then after letting all these parts of you be expressed, you sit back, you know, in that seat and just remember that you are the director and that these parts and pieces don't have power over you, that they're a part of you, that they're actually a sacred part of you, that they're gifts, that each of them has their own wisdom. And you'll learn so much through what they want to share with you just through journaling alone. Mm. So many more different kinds of embodiment practices. It's a huge part of what I do, but that's just a little journal exercise. Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Thank you for sharing your time. I feel like I could probably talk to you mm -hmm. for like another six hours, but <laughs> we'll wrap it up for this time. Um, if you could please share uh, with the audience where people can find you and learn more about the work that you do and maybe work with you. And then we also have for my Patreon community, we do like a quarterly book club and we always pick books that guests have recommended. So I always ask my guests at the end of each episode if they could recommend one or two books that was like really instrumental to you in your life. What might that be? Ooh. And we might all read it together. <laughs> I love it. Oh. Yeah, let's start with the books. So the book Jambalaya by Louisa Teich mm. is amazing. Beautiful, powerful woman right there, an elder, an elder black woman um, who has so much to share around ancestral rituals and reclaiming your feminine power and reclaiming the feminine on the earth. And then for a more um, psychological perspective as far as ancestral healing and these patterns, I recommend the book It Didn't Start With You by Mark Wolin. And as far as where you can find me, so I'm Tori. I'm the founder of Sacred Ancestry. And so you can find me at sacredancestry.com and Sacred Ancestry on Instagram. And if you're wanting a really beautiful, simple, free way to get started on your path of ancestral healing, I have a five-day challenge called the Wise and Well Challenge to connect you to your ancestors. So you can find that at the link in my bio on Instagram. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you so much again for being here. It's so just constantly refreshing <laughs> to meet strangers and just feel so aligned and so, um, yeah, just on similar journeys and thinking similar things. It's like goes back to that belonging piece. It's just like, yes, okay. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not alone. We're all doing it. So thank you. I really appreciate all of it. Thank you. Thank you, Anya. Thank you for creating this space for such revolutionary, you know, leadership, thought, feeling to all be expressed mm-hmm. and to be shared with the world. It's so powerful. Thank you. Hello again. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that conversation with Tori. Please go check out her her work if you enjoyed the episode. Um, I know she just completed her course, The Honeyed Womb, but she launched um, an inner child course, I believe, that you could enroll in. And I'm sure she's going to do The Honeyed Womb again. Um, Follow her on Instagram. She's a lot of amazing content. And I relate to her and her journey quite deeply. And I hope a lot of you do too. Uh, If you would like to enroll in the Lunar Circle, the discount has been extended, as has the enrollment date. Go to anyakotz.com slash Lunar Circle to get all that information. Click on the little enroll now, submit your info, and you're in. Uh, If you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes or go to patreon.com slash anyakotz. Join our community of like-minded, amazing humans and help me keep this show ad-free. I'm going to play you out with another song by Maria Jose Montijo called Huracan. Hope you enjoy it. And I will talk to you next time for the hundredth episode. Oh yeah. Bye guys. Pa'l carajo la junta, pa'l carajo la colonia
horizontal, estado de mente. 